Hello and thank you for joining us for our Pulse and Foursquare podcast. My name is Pastor Greg Perkins and I appreciate you tuning us in today that God may speak to you through his word and the Holy Spirit may minister to you through the messages that are brought forth, that you'll be blessed and we pray that you will continue to listen to our podcast and we pray that you would have a blessed day. God bless you all. Today I want to talk about how women have a place in ministry. And this is an important thing in our society even to this day. You know, I don't know what background you've come from, what church uh, affiliation that you've had. And some of your church affiliations do not allow women in ministry, uh, ministry leadership that is, of being ordained or being licensed ministers uh, of which Foursquare does acknowledge that and does allow women to be licensed and ordained pastors. And really, I want to talk about this important subject because uh, we could kind of gloss over this and forget about it and not think, you know, I don't want to make any waves. Uh, but today, we really need to address this just as Paul was having to do in that day because women are very important in the church. So in our teaching today, we're going to look at this segment where he addresses their church gatherings, their meetings that they were having. Um, and really, it's a segment in this letter from chapter 11 through 14 where he's addressing certain things about their meetings together. They were having these lively church gatherings together, uh, but they were kind of dysfunctional. <laughs> so he's actually trying to uh, help them out in that way, show them that you need to have unity because you guys are just a bunch of selfish pigs. I mean, <laughs> you, guys are, you, you guys are selfish and you're not considerate of everybody else. So Paul was wanting them to see these issues and instruct them better how they're to be more considerate and more loving to other people. Now, the first problem we'll look at today in these uh, first 16 verses was regarding this behavior towards uh, women. Uh, of married women, uh, and also I want to address these misunderstanding, these sometimes confusing uh, views of women in the church and how to interpret these scriptures uh, regarding women, especially in ministry leadership. So let's just read this portion. Uh, really, verse 1 was kind of a, uh, I don't know why they, they broke the chapters off in this way, but he's saying, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That was kind of in relation to chapter 10. But then he starts in verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of, of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her, um, her hair cut or shaved, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man, and neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In verse 11, in, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourself, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but if that a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Lord, I ask that as I interpret your word today, as I speak this Lord, would you bring enlightenment, would you bring revelation to each of us? Lord, understanding of what you see in the scripture, what you want us to know about it, what you want us to know about how women have a place 
in ministry and in our church, Lord God. And I just ask that you would bless these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, what I want to understand, what I want to bring from my interpretation, and, and again, there's a lot of people that I respect that have different views on this, these passages than I do. And so I'm going to bring it from my interpretation, but also try to give you an understanding of the background. Now, whenever you, if anyone's ever been to Bible school or, or been into in-depth studies of Scripture and want to bring understanding of Scripture, I often tell people you need to look at more than just the English meaning of the Scriptures. And a lot of times people get sidetracked, well, that's what it says. You know, that's what it says, plain and simple and black and white, you know. And I'm like, well, you also need to interpret Scripture from the original writings and the culture and everything else. When you understand scripture, you have to look at the background of a lot of things and the setting in which they were in. Now, the sign of marriage in that day was for the woman to wear a veil or, this, or to style their hair in a particular way. Sim, it was a symbolic thing just as much as a ring is for a married person today. To wear a ring was for a married woman to wear this veil. They had to wear this thing, or to particularly style their hair in such a way where they knew she's off limits. You know, <laughs> Basically, you could see, okay, she's married. Uh, women praying or prophecy was not the issue for Paul in this passage. It was not an issue for them, uh, but that wasn't the problem. There was some confusion among the married women that were having this freedom in leadership that uh, loosed them from their husband's authority or their covering, which was simply not true. Uh, there's a difference in ministry leadership and also the covering of one's husband in this. So there's still the honoring of the husband in that relationship, in that marriage relationship. But within the church, you also have to understand that it doesn't absolve you from the, your husband's covering in this situation. Um, but they could, uh, so they were therefore setting aside their veils. You know, they're going to the church and basically take off their ring. And they're like, huh? Well, what are you doing that for? It's like in that sense. And that's what I, the picture I want you to see in this. That wasn't the case. Paul argued that husbands and wives are ultimately joined together as humans in oneness and in unity, just as God and you could say the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. Whenever I teach on uh, marriage and whenever I'm talking to a couple that are planning to get married, I'm talking to them and saying, you two are becoming one flesh, becoming one person. You're becoming in unity. No longer are you going to consider yourselves in the sense, I'm, I'm selfish. And, and again, Paul is addressing selfishness in this uh, as we all can be selfish at times. And when I've met with couples at times, you know, in, in premarital counseling, I'm saying, you know what marriage is? It's like two selfish people coming together as one <laughs> and then learning to try to consider one another more important than yourselves, that you have to conform and you have to make adjustments in your life. And some of those people don't get that, you know, they, and then they have marital problems. Well, Therefore, married couples should continue to honor and to respect their marriage first above uh, even the ministry. You know, and, you know, I would, I've learned a, a, a quote years ago, and I thought it was sounded selfish. But uh, one, uh, I think it was probably when I was a youth pastor in my, in my first uh, ministry appointment, and my pastor would tell me, he goes, the minister's more important than the ministry. And I'm like, no, it's not. That's selfish, you know? And I'm like, and he goes, no, the ministry is more important than the ministry. And I'm like, what? And I had to come to that understanding because you as a person, you're no good to the ministry if you're not healthy. If your marriage isn't healthy, you're no good to the ministry. You also have to have consideration of your own family life and put your family above the ministry. Now, I can, I can apologize all day long to my kids how a lot of times, you know, I put the ministry above my kids. Got busy doing life, doing ministry, and it, and it you know, it hurt my family in that sense. And so, 
You know, I've tried to, even even later years, trying to correct that, trying to make, you know, priority of my family, even of myself, and actually, uh, they call it soul care, you know, <laughs> take care of yourself, that you stay healthy so you can continue to be a healthy minister. Well, he's kind of addressing some of those things, things as well. So, uh, then again, later in this chapter, we're going to talk about another problem in their meetings regarding uh, making class distinctions among themselves, uh, referring to sharing meals together, like the observance of communion as we do here together on a monthly occasion. They shared, and they uh, it wasn't the simple, you know, the communion cup and the bread back then. It was actually a complete meal that they were having. So they were sharing, breaking bread together meant they were eating and having a full meal together, but they were also being selfish with that. We'll talk about that more next week. They were separating the upper class from the lower class. Okay, you're, you know, we recognize you, but you can sit over there. <laughs> you, you, you little people or you, you know, some of you people, you can sit over there. So they were being selfish in that as well. So back to the first portion of this chapter, it appears there was more confusion rather than rebellion going on in the church. There were just a lot of misunderstandings. In verse 2, Paul was affirming them and praising them for remembering him and holding to the teachings that he had taught them. Uh, and they were trying to obey these teachings, but because he was not with them, they had started to forget some of these things. They'd forgotten and misunderstood what they were being taught. They were also being influenced by outside teachings that were coming in and some worldly teachings. And so undoubtedly, he taught them similar as he did to the Galatian church. Uh, in that Galatian letter, he said this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 through 28. He said, Therefore, the law has become our tutor or our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus has clothed uh, yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And this is important for them to know this. It's even important for us to today. That they separated, you know, there was a distinction between Jews and Greeks. He said, there's no, no distinction here with God. You're all equal in his sight, male and female, Greek or Jew, slave or free. So while the law became a tutor to lead them to Christ uh, and justifies us by faith so that we are no longer under that law but under grace, it doesn't free oneself from, you could say, the observances of culture. Culture does matter in some situations. Uh, unintentionally, by women in the church, removing their veil was making this big social statement and offense within the church. Therefore, Paul speaking to them uh, as their pastor would instruct them to be considerate um, and to restrict themselves in some of their freedoms so as not to offend, especially your husbands, for one, uh, or, or to become a temptation for someone else. You know, if they remove that veil, they're basically saying, hey, she's available. You know, you're just like, that was just a, a big mistake. And they're saying, no, she's not available. <laughs> Put the veil back on. Um, so just as he had spoken on the other issues in the previous chapters, of becoming a stumbling block for any unbeliever or any other believer, that is. And so we have to be considerate of ever becoming a stumbling block for him because we have these freedoms in Christ and we should be able to do whatever we want to. We're not under the law, but under grace. And we're like, hmm, you may think that again. I want to talk about, first of all, is giving honor to the source, as Paul talked about in verse 3. Paul talks about headship. And the use of the word head in this reference uh, is to the source of something. So give honor to the source, is my first point, and giving honor to the source, using the example of a relationship between God the Father and Jesus, 
his son, shows the spirit in which they function. Now, you could say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity are in unity, right? They're three persons of the Godhead. We call them one. We don't call them separate in the sense God is one, but we also recognize the three persons of the Godhead. They are in unity in that, like a, a marriage union, they are considered one. They are the inseparable. Um, and so, but they also serve in different functions. In the function meaning that God the Father, Jesus has submitted himself to the Father in that function. Um, and so, likewise, he's saying Christ is the head of man. He's also saying Adam was created from the, the dust by the Son and, and are intended to bring honor to Christ. By saying man is the head of woman, he's referring to the Son uh, taking the rib from Adam, thus creating uh, woman, and Adam became the physical source of Eve. She was created to be uh, a helpmeet or a partner with him, to complete him and to help what was lacking in him. And then by saying God is the head of Christ, he's saying that even Christ has become the source whom he honors. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. But they serve in different functions and honor one another in their relationship of love and unity. It's saying that man is not independent of woman and woman is not independent of man. In that marriage context, you are inseparable. You are one. So in the premarital counseling, I often speak to couples about that oneness, but also functions. I would often ask a couple, um, you know, about headship in marriage. What do, you, what do you see about leadership in marriage? What do you see about the importance of someone being in charge or functions in marriage? And, and usually when I'm meeting together with this uh, engaged couple, they're like, Oh, you know, we're just going to make decisions all together and we'll just never be, never have a dis disagreement. We're just always going to agree on everything. And I'm like, that's so cute. I mean, that's, that's wonderful. You know, I just, I just love that. And, um, you know, and then I say, well, what does the Bible have to say about that? about functions in marriage. <laughs> and, and people were just like, huh? <laughs> what? Um, is there to be a leader in marriage? And if so, what does that look like? Is it always the husband in charge and he's the main leader? And uh, usually, you know, they would often say, you know, we'll just make all our decisions together and we won't ever have be an issue. Well, what happens when you don't agree about something? Like what's for dinner tonight? That's a small issue, I know, but it happens pretty much every day, right? Every day. I don't know, what do you want? I don't know, what do you want? I don't know, what do you want? It's like... <sighs> but there's also much more complicated things when children come into the picture, right? When children come into the picture, and then also, I know this is never even a consideration, but I often talk about dating someone that's unequally yoked with you in that faith, in that relationship. And when you are dating someone, when you're in a relationship and you claim to be a Christian and this person is not a Christian, I'm like, God help you. God help you. And also when people come into asking me if I would marry them and saying, you know, would you marry us? You know, I know he's, he's not a Christian and I'm I am a Christian, but it's all just going to work out in the end. Ouch. Ouch. Please, please hear me. I want to get on my hands and knees. Please, please hear me. And I'm not even kidding about that. That when you disregard the importance of a believer versus a non-believer... Not on my own testimony, but the testimony of many people that have come into my office crying their eyes out, going, I wish I would have listened. I wish I would have not done this. I got my emotions carried away with me, and I think he was so beautiful and so gorgeous and wonderful and everything else. 
and then later on, it didn't work out. Because what makes you think that missionary dating is all of a sudden going to change that person? I always ask my children, the number one thing before you start a relationship, do they love God more than they love you? Do they love God more than they love you? Because if that person does not love God more than you, don't think that your, your own goodness and righteousness is all of a sudden going to change them. I'm not saying God can't save a person. I'm not saying that God can't change a person. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. But don't enter into that relationship. When, you know, it, those things, when you have children, do you want them to be, how do you want them to be raised? Do you want them to go to church? Do you want, what about school? Do you want them to be in the public school or private school or homeschooled? What do you want to do about that? What about disciplinary issues? Do you, how do you discipline your children? Et cetera, et cetera. Who makes that final decision? How do you honor those decisions in marriage? Because again, these are gonna, these are gonna bump heads once in a while. So Paul's explanation tells us there is structure. There is order for functions in marriage and it is to be in love and respect just as he spoke in Ephesians chapter five about submit to one another in love. Husbands, wives, husbands love your wives and wives respect or submit to your husband. So in the church, Paul is saying that wives and women are to continue to be respectful in their marriage in the church by wearing this customary head covering even though they weren't under the law, they were still under the covering of honoring their husbands. Yes, in marriage, the number one is the husband is to be the spiritual leader for the family. Plain and simple, scripturally. Why do you think there's such a decay and moral decay and decay in our societies? Because fathers have not taken that role seriously in, this, in our world today. They are to honor God, put God number one. And if they put God number one and they honor him and they love their wives as Christ loved the church, I believe and I would say this wholeheartedly, their wives will do everything and they will have that respect for them. There's nothing a wife wouldn't do for their husband if he honored God and loved her as Christ loved the church. I believe that wholeheartedly. So, in the church, Paul saying that wives are to continue to be respectful of their marriage in the church by wearing this, this, this covering. And for modesty purposes, women should, um, they would braid their hair in such a way and then uh, cover it with a veil. For the woman to let her hair down or to untie her hair was only intended for her husband to see that. Uh, the misunderstanding of this was causing this disrespect of their husbands and unintentionally labeling them as immodest. Uh, and their behavior was causing a problem for others as well. In addition, any woman who shaved her hair was also was something not only women uh, accused. If you were caught in adultery, the woman would often shave their head, and that would be considered a, a, a shaming of them. Uh, and it was done, it was that considered uh, shameful. Now, Paul acknowledged that a woman should pray, or uh, he acknowledged that women can prophesy or pray in church in their gatherings. And he makes no suggestion that they shouldn't be doing that. Rather, he is concerned was, um, was whether women had their heads uncovered or not. And so in this customary sense, be careful of how you and Corinth observe these things together. Maybe this won't be an issue in Africa. Maybe that wouldn't be an issue in other countries. But you guys, for you, this would be a major issue. Good Christians who love God's word differ on whether Christian or not should be allowed to lead or to teach. There are scriptures to be cited on both. The both sides of the issues on this. So the, pa the three passages that are usually referenced to support that position uh, that women should not teach in the church or to be leaders are what we just read in 1 Corinthians 1 through 16, uh, also in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 
verses 34 and 35, and also in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 12 through 15. That's where a lot of people base their opinions on that, what had Paul had written. While each of these may seem clear, there's also uh, some very problematic things in those. And scholars and theologians have long debated over these things. Now, for example, in what we just read in 1 Corinthians, women were to wear that head covering. And in Paul's day, this was also um, not just a little bonnet, but it was actually a full-length covering. And I know some churches that still have uh, wear coverings for the women. They have these little uh, hats, Amish, you know, some more traditional Mennonite churches and, and such wear those. Uh, but I don't know any Christians or churches who observe this full-length veil that was in Paul's day or the church's day, at least not in our Western culture, that is. Why? Because we believe, as Paul wrote this specific cultural context, and to interpret it accordingly. Also, this passage says that women can pray or prophesy in the church as long as they are appropriately covered. Again, in the culture setting. Uh, How does this square with Paul's intentions within the other two passages that women should remain silent? Is it possible that Paul wrote about women uh, was written in specific cultural context and needs to be understood in that accordingly? Uh, Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let me read a portion of that, as I mentioned. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Women are to be kept silent, or to keep silent in all the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but subject themselves, just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. My second point today is to make for peace and order. Because of the disorderliness in the church, and there's a lot of disorder in this church, there was a lot of disunity and selfishness going on in these gatherings, Paul's main purpose was to give them instructions for keeping the peace among yourselves, Um, and he wanted them to behave orderly and also be respectful of one another, which they weren't. Instead, husbands and wives were apparently having these disruptive conversations. But in this, Paul was uh, not giving Paul away. Paul was not giving away of a new law that censored or prohibited women from ministering in the church as the Holy Spirit led them. It was not for uh, it was for order, not for restricting or keeping them in bondage. In this passage, sadly. However, these verses are often taken out of context by ignoring Paul had already mentioned women praying and prophesying. Again, he had no problem with that. He had no problem with women speaking and sharing in a congregational setting. Uh, But many people ignore that. Many scholars debate the meaning of 1 Corinthians chapter 14's command for women to be silent in church. Was, Was this cultural? Was there any culture basis for that? Was it due to a a divided seating? Now, men and women didn't sit together in the church. You know, husbands and wives, women would be in the back and men would be in 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 the front, in the gathering. So there was that cultural setting. Uh, what, What made it disgraceful for a woman to speak? And why say this when he had already said they could pray and prophesy. Now, as I said over the next chapters, uh, chapters 11 through 14, Paul was writing to them about some of these selfish struggles that they were all having in their gatherings together, and they were dishonoring. And there was also the dishonoring of authority figures. Uh, In verses 33, Paul uh, deals with the problem of disruptive side conversations they were were also having. So Paul states a foundational principle uh, of the character of God and said that God is the God of order. He is the God of peace and respect, not of confusion, uh, disruptive or disorderly behavior in chapter 14. 
Now let me read for you a portion of 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, that seems, seems legit. That seems pretty simple to understand, right? Women are just to only have children and to shut up. <laughs> That's a, what? So this, this Timothy passage is equally problematic, you could say. Uh, for example, what does Paul mean that women will be saved through childbearing? What is he saying there? Typically, uh, if a passage doesn't make sense, it is wise to dig a little deeper, right? <laughs> I can encourage you, and if you're reading through scriptures, dig a little deeper and find out some more meaning behind it. This is why scholars have wrestled. They continue to wrestle on this passage with and so the word saved or the, or the meaning preserved through childbearing is the Greek word sozo, which means also healed or preserved in body, soul, and spirit. We, you know, we believe in healing in a sozo sense that God heals us in body, soul, and in spirit. Um, as with any married couple, God calls all to be, to, what does he say? It's never stopped. What did he say to Adam and Eve? Go and be fruitful and multiply, yes. You know, and in our day and age that we should not have that many children. He's like, you know, our world is shrinking and we have too many people in our world. And I'm like, God never said be fruitful and multiply is finished. Ever, ever. There's plenty of world, there's plenty of space in this world. And so, you know, we believe that God's word is true, that we should bear children. This does not mean women are saved or born again by being giving birth, but more so that women or motherhood uh, who continues in her faith and love and holiness with self-control to God will have this huge impact on her children. One that is a, a God-fearing woman who raises her children in the Lord is going to have a dramatic effect on how your children come to serve Christ someday. That's huge. And so in that sense, even though they didn't uh, teach in the church, Paul's saying they will have a huge impact on their own family generations by your own love for God. I'm here today because I had a mother, a God-fearing mother that loved Jesus and, and kept wanting me to go to youth retreat and kept going. And I'm like, forget you, mom. I'm not going to that stupid thing, you know? And, and I went finally and I actually, I had a, a dramatic revelation of God for the first time. That's why I'm always saying, go to camp, go to camp, go to camp, go to retreat. And so, because when I went, that was the first time I really engaged in worship and I came to know it's like the blinders came off my eyes. Wow, God, you are real. Wow. But because of a mom, because of, you know, a dad in some cases, you know, someone mentor, someone that led you to Jesus. We're all probably here because of a relationship in some sense. But he's addressing that to women in this. Because of the heavy influence of these false teachers uh, that Paul was writing, uh, the setting in in uh, Paul writing to Timothy was he was the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And the church of Ephesus, uh, some of the women were deceived. And Paul's letter to Timothy was to instruct them and these men and women alike needed to listen to their pastor. And they weren't listening to him. And so he's instructing them, in particular, some of these uh, uneducated and these ill-informed women. These strong, strong women that, need, that had been disruptive. And so Paul is saying, you need, Timothy, you need to instruct these women that are ill-informed, uneducated, and, and we take it for granted, we just forget about these things, that only until the last, what, less than 200 years, women were not educated, were not allowed to be educated. 
And so in this setting also, they were not educated. Women were not allowed to be uh, taught in the synagogues and in the, in the schools of that day. And so we forget about that part, but this is exactly what was happening in this setting as well. Paul uh, was trying to teach them the truth. Just like Paul mentored and taught Timothy, he's saying, you need to instruct your people, Paul, Timothy. You need to go to them and instruct them. Uh, this is also why Paul said he would not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Timothy in particular. You, you really should not be teaching, and I would say this to both men and women that you know, want or desire to speak in a, in a public situation or giving them the pulpit in front of a church. I'm like, you have no business teaching anything where you are right now. <laughs> if you have no understanding of Scripture, you have to really take this seriously. You're, you know, this is important that we rightly divide the word of truth, that we also be careful that we uh, show ourselves approved, if you will, that we don't take it lightly because there's also a stricter judgment for teachers, it says in James. So we have to be understanding of that before we ever get in the pulpit or in a teaching set, setting. Uh, if you're, if you're ill-informed and you're, you don't have any not that I, I allow people, as you already mentioned this morning, that if you have a word or God prompts you, I want to give you encouragement to bring that forth in the church. I do. Giving a sermon is a little bit more different with me. <laughs> giving a sermon and also giving that word, I want to make sure that you know what you're talking about. This is what Paul was talking about, a particular kind of authority, a kind of authority that these women... Uh, to avoid is explained by the uncommon Greek word he used in this uh, authentian, and the more common word for authority was exousia. So uh, in this, authentian was based on the personal pronoun for self, and it was based on someone using authority that no one has given them. You're using authority that no one has given you to share. And so you're just like, bleh, bleh. You're just going up and you're being disruptive. And you're not being respectful. You're not re respectful of your pastor. And so you're getting up there and you're just like spouting off and, and creating these disruptions. And Paul's saying, you need to tell them to stop it. Uh, that's authority or authentic that has not been given to them. And it's based on someone using authority in that sense. So by saying that word, Paul was describing these women who are putting themselves in a position of authority over their leader, over Timothy. And they were disrespecting him. And Paul was, at, and you could say Paul as well, because he's the one who uh, started this church. He's saying, you know, you're, you're disrespecting my authority overall. Um, and he would not want either women or man to do that. Instead, these outspoken Ephesian women needed to back down and respect and listen to their God-given authority. Paul was not trying to say that women are more deceived than men. <laughs> men are plenty deceived. <laughs> uh, so by using Eve as an example, rather, God gave instruction to Adam not to eat from the tree. Now, this is important to know. God spoke directly to Adam and said, do not eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He spoke that to Adam. Adam shared that with his wife, Eve. God did not directly speak to Eve and say, do not eat from this tree. He spoke it to Adam. What did Adam do? He ignored that. He ignored it. He was right there when she picked the fruit. He's like, mm -hmm, okay, this... You know, not that big a deal, you know, just a little bite. He was just ignoring. He didn't stop her. He didn't stop her in that sense. So uh, it, was, it wasn't fully her fault. Uh, Adam, who was told directly by God, ignored it and watched Eve do the very thing he God told him not for them to do. She may have been deceived, but he was rightfully disobedient in this. Likewise, women in the church were not directly taught because of the lack of education or overhearing things 
They were deceived also by outside influences of false teachers. And the false teachers of that society uh, were teaching these falsehoods, obviously, gossips, old wives' tales. Uh, They were not being properly taught by their husbands. He said for the husbands to go and teach your wives what you hear, what you're being taught. Go teach them so that they would know the truth because they didn't have schools for them. So in the, in the times of Jesus' ministry, women were usually regarded as subordinate or inferior in virtually every area of life. They were to remain at home to be good wives and mothers and to take no part in public discourse or education. Now, on the other hand, Jesus included women in his circle of followers. The distinction you see in Jesus' whole ministry is that he valued Women, Uh, something that no other rabbi did. Jesus' teachings and his his actions affirmed the worth and the value of women as persons that needed to be included along with the men with God's love and service. And so throughout his ministry, he reached out to women who were rejected. And in many settings, he taught both men and women in a day when only men could be taught. So when he's taught, On the Sermon of the Mount, guaranteed women were there in that occasion. And it should be noted that this is a very important, something that you should not overlook as well. What about the resurrection of Jesus? Who did he appear to first? Or who did the angels appear to first? It was to the women. Do you think there was a, uh, that was just irrelevant? No, it was very relevant. Actually, they were told to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so they went and told them, and they go, yeah, right. You don't know what you're talking about. They ignored it. They completely ignored the women. And so they ran, Peter and John and the other disciples ran to the tomb, found it just as they had said. And when Jesus appeared among them, what did he do? He not only showed them his hands and his feet, he rebuked them. You did not listen to the women. It is true. He was saying that you need to respect women and you need to treat them with respect and their own authority that God has given them to tell and to tell what has been done. And they didn't. See, this was not, and I have to give them some credit because this is like such a culture shift for them. They're going, huh? Really? I mean, you got to give them some credit for these guys because this is so contradictory to their upbringing and their culture. Now God is changing things in this. He also rebuked them. And so it is also clear that on the day of Pentecost, the 120 were not just men, but there's men and women that were praying. And when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they started uh, speaking in tongues and prophesying and uh, they were filled with the Holy Spirit there was a direct relation to Joel's prophecy that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, both men and women, young and old. And so the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon them. So in Galatians, uh, when Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, 28, that there's neither Greek nor Jew nor slave or free or women or men, uh, describes there's equalness before God. Before God, we are considered equal. There, you know, there is functions in marriage, yes. But in that church setting, God sees us as equal. If we believe that Jesus made both Jew and Gentile equal before God, why would we not believe that about men and women? Why would we let a Jew or Gentile lead or slave or free speak, but not women? Why would we do that? Why do we let just a Jew when he poured out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, when Peter described it as a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that God would pour out his Spirit on all flesh, uh, that if a woman is gifted by God to speak, why would he forbid her? Why would that be the case? There are women and leaders and speakers in churches in the, the book of Acts, all throughout Acts. And in Paul's letters, he refers to women leaders in the churches, for example, in Romans chapter 16, he mentions names of those. 
Lastly, I want to say is that understand that God is no respecter of persons. Really that we need to understand this. The gospel was for all people, not just for the Jews. God is no respecter of persons means that God will provide everyone and every person the opportunity for salvation, but also to receive the blessings available through salvation. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that the gospel, that, the, that God shows no partiality. And, and when he saw this vision of the, the sheet of all the unclean animals, and God said, Take and eat. And he said, No way. No way. And, he, and of course he was saying that God has opened the door for the Gentiles to take and eat from, you know, God is no respecter of persons that God told him that nothing is unclean that he calls unclean. And he was talking about the gospel being open to all people. This was also an open door for both men and women that God appoints, you know, it says in Romans chapter 13, God appoints all authority. He didn't even say God appoints only men authority figures. All authority. And throughout the book of Acts, several women are known to be leaders in the house churches. There was house churches, Chloe, Nymphia, Aphia, and Lydia. Those are just some of the names that he mentions in that. Now, the culture of Jesus' day and Paul's day was patriarchal. And so women had almost no rights, were not allowed virtually anything except to stay at home and to bear children. So Jesus, you could say... Uh, ignored culture, ignored culture, but and to some degree, though not entirely, so did Paul. And it seems to me that the, uh, the arc of the biblical teaching and God's intent was to make us one in the church. And God gifts, gives gifts to every person, no exception. I cannot think of a good reason or a biblical one to deny half the church the ability to use their gifts, particularly of speaking and leading. And again, if men would lead in their homes and be spiritual leaders in their families and their homes, there would be a lot more men in our church settings. But you know what I have to say? That there are more women in churches than there are men. So I can't think of any good reason and that's a short answer. The whole books have been written on the subject, both sides, both sides of why we should not allow women in ministry and other books that say they should. You know, and I would say by a number of good Christians. I don't believe there's a litmus test for true Christians. I think sincere believers can disagree about this and still be good friends and be Christians together. I have Christian friends that still are gonna fall to this side and others that do not. I clearly believe that a gifted woman can speak or lead, but I also recognize that there are differences between men and women, and I'm not trying to deny or to dismiss that. In fact, those differences make it all the more important to me that we have female voices in leadership. You know, I certainly don't know everything, <laughs> and I'm so grateful that Jill, you know, has also now been licensed and ordained herself. You know, because I, I just find joy in that. I find joy and pleasure that God is able to use women in ministry, and I want others to do that as well. If you didn't know the Foursquare Church or the, 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 the true definition of the Foursquare Church, the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel was founded by a woman, Amy Semple McPherson, um, and it recognizes, it allows, it celebrates women to be licensed and ordained pastors, evangelists, missionaries, and various other leadership positions in the church. I hope this may not answer all your questions about this, but I hope it would give some understanding of what Paul was talking about. The cultural setting doesn't absolve women from the covering of, the spiritual covering of their husbands, that they would be still respectful of their husbands in the public gatherings. And, uh, you know, I can think of all kinds of different women that I, I respect, I admire. There's a lot of women speakers out there. I can name a number of them. And I, I, can, always, um, I can always remember, if, you're, if you think of this woman that was gifted by God, 
uh, Catherine Coleman. Have you ever heard of her and the history of Catherine Coleman that was uh, well-known in the 60s and, and 70s, uh, very well-gifted and uh, women of God in healings and miracles and such. And Catherine Coleman, you know what? God first called her husband to do that. God first called her husband, but he ignored that call. So she felt like God had instructed my husband to lead in this way. And because he ignored that, God put it on her and said, I'm giving that to you. And, and she was used mightily for God in that. Uh, that doesn't mean that God said that, you know, um, just because our husbands disobey, that means that's the open door for women. God has provided and means and, and callings upon men and women alike to serve in ministry leadership. Does this bring up some helpful understanding? I hope it does. Uh, I'm sure there's other questions that might arise and you could see me later on that. I have some books I could share with you as well. Let's, let us close in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for helping us bring enlightenment, for bringing us better understanding of things that we may know more of what it means to be the church, what it means to acknowledge and, and see the functions that you give us all, especially in marriage, that we're always honoring uh, our marriage. We're always placing that first and family first, even above the ministry, that we'd be honorable. We would be respectful of our spouses, but also, Lord, we would also rightfully take the positions, and, and especially as men, uh, Father, I pray for more fathers to take their respectful positions as spiritual leaders of their home, that, Lord God, you would help each and every one of us that we can make a difference for our children, whether, whether they be young children or even adult children. I pray, Lord, that we can continue to be a light and an example as men uh, to lead our, our families well, to love you with all of our heart, that we would love you, God, more than anything. We would place you first above everything else, Lord. And Lord God, that you'd bless marriages. You'd keep them together. You'd uh, heal those that are struggling right now. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would also, Lord, show the value that you saw Jesus and women. That we may acknowledge and, and platform them. Give them place and respect them in areas of teaching and leadership. I pray, Lord God, you just show us this and may we all have open hearts to receive what you want for us today and through your word that we are taught today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey guys, Billy here. I'm the media director here at Polson Foursquare and I'm glad that you guys could join us this morning. If you guys are looking for more information, you guys can go to polsonfoursquare.org. And if you guys enjoyed the sermon, consider subscribing or sharing it with a friend. Thanks for joining us this morning, and we hope that you have a blessed week.